The Law Society is warning of a looming crisis in parts of the country's property sector as buyers lose deposits after unknowingly entering agreements on flood-damaged houses. Lawyers are seeing an uptick in people entering into legally binding sales and purchase contracts only to find their bank will no longer give them the mortgage because the house is uninsurable. In some cases where an owner did receive insurance money, the Law Society's Deputy Chair of the Property Law Section, Christine King, says there's no follow-up on whether they actually used the money to fix their house. Christine of Duncan King Law in Auckland says in many cases the buyer can't get the deposit back. Sometimes that's more than $100,000. She fears this is just the beginning of a financial disaster across Auckland, Northland, Hawke's Bay and Gisborne. The chief executive of mortgage advisor Squirrel, David Cunningham, believes it's indicative of a wider problem looming of how difficult it may be to get insurance in flood-prone areas. David, good morning. Kia ora, Catherine. With us first, though, Christine King. Welcome to Nine to Noon. Good morning, everybody. So what's been happening that's causing concern? We're seeing a number of issues. Uh, as um, you've mentioned in your headline piece, um, we are aware of purchases entering into agreements for sale and purchase where there has been flood damage. In some places, it has been completely not disclosed. Uh, and keep in mind with the agreement for sale and purchase, if damage occurred before the agreement was entered into, on the face of it, there's actually no obligation for the vendor to disclose that to the purchaser. Or if it is being disclosed, it's kind of being minimised in a way to um, you know, make the purchaser feel a little bit more comfortable about it. But we're encountering then issues on settlement when we actually need full insurance to make sure we satisfy your bank and can draw down your, your funds for your settlement. Can you give us some examples of what's happened? Sure. So one example, and obviously I'm not going to breach confidentiality, but I'll just speak in very general terms. I had a client uh, who purchased in the middle of last year. It all looked really, really good. Uh, we went to settle earlier this year in January. And in the usual course of action, she went to try and secure insurance before settlement uh, to find that the vendor had made multiple claims last year without disclosing this, including a number related to the weather events and flooding. Um, her, My client's insurer didn't have details but could see the number of claims and actually denied the insurance which makes things pretty tricky on settlement when you can't draw down those settlement funds. Well the bank will say no insurance, no mortgage, nine times out of ten won't they? Oh, 10 times out of 10. Okay. Uh, it's it's a, a precondition of your drawdown to actually have not only insurance, but insurance suitable to your lender. So how many clients are you dealing with or are you aware of who are in this situation? There's hundreds, thousands. Keep in mind, the Insurance Council reported December last year that over 115,000 claims, okay? So that's the ones we know about. There's also the sheer number of people who haven't claimed, those people that were uninsured outside the parameters of EQC. So potentially, it could be a bigger number than that. At the moment, would you say it's in the dozens that you know of, or is it already in the hundreds that you know of, where a purchase has happened and a deposit's been lost. So at this stage, most of the time we do find uh, ways to, to work around the issue. So it might be we've got another property that we can secure the lending around. Um, but certainly, even with my own firm, we're seeing hundreds of instances already where there is property damage that is impacting the insurance um, and the lending to some extent. Hundreds. All right. Can mm-hmm. we come back to the process? 
On a sale and purchase agreement, a legally binding contract, there is, if they're using the, the, the uh, real estate agency, uh, real estate's REANZ document, there is a segment for disclosures. Is there not an onus on a vendor to disclose any damage pertinent to the purchase of the property? This is a really interesting question. If you actually do look at the standard agreement for sale and purchase in terms of what we call vendor warranties, there's lots of things about um, what has happened to the property after the contract's entered into. Um, there's warranties about the condition of the property. There's, there's warranties about um, if works have been done legally or not. But there's nothing specifically requiring a vendor to disclose an insurance claim because otherwise, you imagine with you know, all properties, there'd be so much information. I've, I, you know, a, a pipe burst 20 years ago and I, I claimed on my insurance or a burglar tried to break in. We don't disclose that to future purchasers. We've about- still got... You what know, the about, purchaser needs to take care. Okay, but what about the real estate agents themselves? If there's a real estate agent involved on mm-hmm. their standard forms, they'll say, "Has there ever been a? You know, has this ever, ever been right. leaks? Have yes. there been this? Have there been that?" Yes. I thought the onus on them over disclosure had ramped up of late. It, it definitely has. I mean, their obligations, are, they're heightened. They're very much like lawyers in terms of their code of conduct. And this isn't intended to be any criticism of um, agents, but they can only tell you what they know. Okay, so we've got twofold issue. One, we have vendors not disclosing to their agents because they think it's fixed or they sorted it out or it wasn't a big deal. Or it is being disclosed to the agents and it's either being um, put into the disclosure materials, which is often um, like a a side pack part of the marketing materials, which isn't given to the bank and the lawyer. Okay, so it's a little one-pager thing, sometimes back page, tiny font sort of thing. Um, So we do find agents uh, fulfilling their obligations, but maybe not in a way where that information is actually then being disseminated out to the lawyers and the lenders and insurers. What about the situation where the insurance money has been paid but not used on repairs? There's no legal requirement to do so, Christine, is there? Well, there's there's a, a little bit of a legal requirement. The Property Law Act says that um, the um, your lender, if you've got a mortgage on your property, can first insist that the money comes to them so they could potentially manage the repairs or make sure you do it properly. Uh, but it was reported last year that top five banks had come together and are allowing the first 100000 to be released to the property owner, uh, and then they will manage the, the balance with you. But we've got a lot of claims under the 100000 um, but we also have properties that don't have lending on them where we do know that the owners are actually just taking the money and one one example is is off on a trip to Europe. Okay, so just pause as to how this happens. You get paid out the insurance on a property in any circumstance for any damage. Mm-hmm. You can't just t- take the money and run. Will your mortgage lender, your own mortgage lender on the property you currently own, normally insist on on those repairs being done and in some cases take control. Is that what you're telling me? So in in mortgage instruments, there are rules built in there that you are meant to repair the property and interact with your lender. Having said that, you can almost see it as like an honesty box system. They do rely on you, especially for those lower level claims, to actually do the work yourself. Um, And they don't have the resources to actually check up on you and go to the property and see if it's being done or if it's being done to a, a good standard. So at the moment, there's just holes everywhere. Let's come back to your clients. They've... 
I'm curious, Christina, some people seeing bargains, perhaps, and rushing the process also. Yes. Okay, can you explain? Yep, a a great example, actually. Um, This morning there's a little bit of media about uh, some as-is, whereas properties being sold for uh, it's half of, less than half of their um, council or government valuation. And it was great in the article, they do mention that it should only appeal to cash buyers because you will struggle to secure lending and also insurance on these properties. But unfortunately, some people are just so enthused about grabbing a bargain. Um, They seem to drive right in and think they'll be able to sort it out, not actually understanding either the consequences at settlement or the other consequences, you might be able to get insurance and lending at settlement to find that uh, another event occurs and you don't have any cover at that point in time. So some of this is enthusiasm at the prospect of a bargain in knowledge that there's been flood damage. Are there also cases where you simply have no knowledge there's been flood damage? Yes. Okay. And what happens, of course, the the processes, you sign your sale and purchase agreement, you can make it provisional on builders' reports, on all sorts of other reports, on finance being confirmed, uh, before you go unconditional. Typically, is that happening, or are people going, great price, unconditional deal, boom? I think the issue is we've lost sight of what the issue is. We're, we're so um, interested in, say, the, the you know the building report or looking at the limb or, or securing finance. Keep in mind, a lot of people will satisfy their finance because they have a letter from the bank saying, you've satisfied our affordability criteria. They're ignoring that fine print that says you still have to have insurance that's satisfactory to us and we have to approve the property. Same thing with the limb. This information will not be in um, the council produce limb at this stage. It's a recent event. It may it's come a on as event. being a flood risk in the future. Okay. Correct. But also a lot of this information will always be privately held. Most councils have said that they're only going to be putting information in the limbs in respect of Category 3 and Category 2 properties. Those those ones that have been categorised as having a, a very serious risk to life. It's not going to capture these ones that have been damaged that um, potentially could be quite livable, but you do still have an issue with your insurance. Okay. So what happens, Christine? They go to get insurance, the insurer says no, and the bank says no, and the the money is lost. Okay. Another way through this is to sort the insurance. I mean, again, you can make this a condition of your offer, uh, conditional on insurance, right? It sounds like some people, again, are rushing ahead. Perhaps they, perhaps they see someone else turning up at the open home or whatever. Um, what is a way of insuring, oh goodness, <laughs> making sure you've got the insurance bef- bef- before you lose your deposit here? That's, that's actually it. That is, you've, you've absolutely captured what needs to happen. But in 99.99% of deals, we never, ever see it conditional on sufficient insurance. Really? Exactly. Is Isn't this it scary? Beca- but, but is this because of competition? Because, you know, at, at a time in the market with, with the property market, and I'll come to David for his insights on this in a moment before his wider thoughts. At a time in the property market where high interest rates have slowed things, you would have thought people were in a position to take more time. But in some of these parts of the country, are you still seeing competition-driving risky behaviour, or is it a lack of knowledge? What? 
Primarily, I would say it's lack of knowledge. I, I think these people think that insurance is something that will be automatically issued to them, and they would they haven't even contemplated that it it could be of concern. So, at what point is this turning up? Then, uh, you know, again, ideally, you'd probably be talking to your lawyer from the point you're making an offer. I know this all gets so expensive for everybody, um, but at what point are people finding this out, and how? Most people are finding this out days before settlement. Um, the reason, the reason being, is they assume that um, insurance will issue automatically, and it's when they've seen their lawyer just before settlement to sign the loan documents, and we remind them once again we need to see an insurance certificate for full cover, satisfactory to the bank. They start ringing around the insurers, and then find out there there's a problem. It, often is actually the night before settlement, two days before. So, And they're ignoring, unfortunately, our advice that we need to actually investigate this insurance aspect before they declare unconditional, before they're committed to this purchase. I mean, as is where is, is interesting, isn't it? People in the know, that's basically telling you this property's got issues. But again, there's no kind of set language or guidance for people who aren't in the know, is there? No, but I would have thought... Let's say that's a red flag. So yep. anytime you see in a contract, as is, where is, that's basically telling you you're about to inherit someone else's really expensive problem. What I don't understand, Christine, is why there is not a greater onus on the vendor to disclose. I think you had one instance where there were 10 insurance claims that, had, mm-hmm. that the vendor hadn't disclosed. Correct. And particularly not to disclose a major incident like, a, like flood damage and relatively recently. Are you able to go and argue that that's deposit should be refunded in any of these cases? It is really, really tricky. If this had happened after we had an agreement on foot, the vendor owes an, us an obligation to um, give us um, information and notices that um, you know have been issued. What do you mean on foot? Oh, after the agreement's signed. Okay, so once okay. you've got a, a deal on foot, the vendor owes you obligations to communicate with you about that property. And if they're served with any notice or any kind of big legal thing happens, they've got to tell yeah, but you. But this is prior, and this is what yeah. I don't understand about the sale and purchase agreement, because the, there was definite ramping up on the responsibility of real estate agents not to hide things. Mm. There's been a bloody great roof leak last week or a leaky, you know, mm-hmm. or, or a leaky, um, you know, mould behind walls or yep. damage. Um, if, if the onus ramped up on the real estate agent, why didn't it ramp up on the vendor? I know, isn't it interesting? I actually do think there's a massive disconnect and I almost feel sorry for the real estate agents because they're, they're squeezed in the middle where they have to disclose all of this information, including around um, activity of previous vendors because sometimes we might have some extra vendors in the middle between the, the event and the actual, this final sale. Um, but our current vendors only have to disclose things that they've done or things that have occurred after the contract has actually been signed. What do you believe, well first awareness given the number of properties that will be damaged um, Mm -hmm. and heartbreaking as it is, let's acknowledge the stress that many vendors are under in impossible Mm -hmm. situations, but this is about being fair and being upfront and and everybody acting with full knowledge basically, Mm. Um, but what is it that you believe in the immediate term or in the longer term would improve the situation? There needs to be a dynamic shift in how we approach 
these transactions. Our, our purchasers need to be really educated. I would love to see um, a standard insurance clause, very similar to you know the LIM and Finance and Builders Clause, built into those standard agreements for sale and purchase. So it, it flags for purchasers that insurance is an aspect that's just as important as making sure you've got finance and you know a builder has gone through it. Or um, potentially different clauses like you mentioned requiring the vendor to disclose everything they know around insurance claims. But in the meantime, our purchasers need to investigate. They need to actually check with their insurer what the availability of cover would look like. Are there any restrictions? But also use some of those free um, information um, points at the moment, like EQC last year released their natural hazard portal, where you can actually pop in your property address and check to see um, if the property has been the, had a successful EQC claim. Because again, EQC claims will give you a bit of a, a feel for well, we're, we're is there a problem on from Canterbury right now, I can tell you about their post-earthquake situation and yep. saying, have we learnt nothing? Uh, apparently we haven't, and it's really disappointing. On the question of insurance, normally, in a, again, in a um, REINZ form, there would be, um, or in a package rather from a, a vendor, there ought to be current a current insurance certificate. Again, is that legal to provide that? And second, if it is provided, can you ring up that insurance company and say, is there any issues with this property or is that a privacy breach? Great question. So that does not happen in um, most areas. I know in Christchurch, because again, we learned some lessons there from the earthquakes, that it is pretty common in the, the pack to get a copy of the insurance certificate and the surrounding insurance data that does not happen and is not happening in these areas that were impacted by the weather events. So in Auckland, I have not come across any where we're actually being given any kind of insurance data. What is what is the takeout advice right now before we come to David, um, especially if you want to go unconditional because you feel like you're in competition? What's the takeout advice you give people? Talk to your lawyer call your insurer before you commit to a purchase. Make sure you're in a good position and we know what we're working with. In terms of conditions, as a condition of finance make it conditional of insurance in that the bank won't lend if it doesn't uh, get insurance or should you be more specific? You need to be more specific. Okay, stay with us Christine, thanks very much. Let's bring in uh, David Cunningham now. Um, he is the chief executive of mortgage broker Squirrel, former banker of 30 years. He says his advisors have caught several situations before they happened. However, he also believes it's indicative of a wider problem looming, how difficult it's going to get to get insurance in flood-prone areas. David, good morning. Good morning. Have you heard of, are you seeing similar cases? Ooh, at with Squirrel, we had about 3,000 sediments last year and none reached the situation where uh, the deposit was lost because insurance wasn't obtainable. And the reason for that is because our advice is always to get insurance in place before going unconditional. So uh, good advice uh, from an advisor and a, and, a, and a solicitor is really important. And, and I think one of the challenges is when we're buying a house, probably a bit like when we're buying a car, we get enthusiastic we're getting a bargain or we need to beat the next person or it's just emotional we get attached and so for such an important purchase where so much is at stake uh we don't do you know we're prone to as human beings not doing what we should which is get advice and be cautious about it well if, so, you've, come you know, to, the, if you've come to a broker as an intermediary you're going to get that advice it's just the more the situation of someone who's talked to the real estate agent um seen the you know seen the price, seen the property, yeah. seen the location and just rushed ahead. 
Exactly. And, um, and, and it's actually lawyers, really Sorry to interrupt you. Are all lawyers, if contact is made with a lawyer before an offer's made, and goodness, you think there would be, are all lawyers onto this, David, in your experience? Are they all specifically saying get insurance? Yes, in my experience, in our experience, absolutely. So some have rushed, um, some people are clearly rushing ahead of the whole process. Yeah, I think I think it's really top of mind because this isn't just a New Zealand issue. It's a sort of a global issue and, and a couple of things. One is that in New Zealand, almost every insurer uses what's called risk-based pricing. In other words, they look at the likelihood of loss and adjust the premium accordingly or, in fact, have areas where they won't insure at all. Go back 10 or 15 years, it was more a one, one price for all, and I've seen it in my own insurance premiums. I'm down Wellington direction, and my premiums have gone up maybe three or fourfold compared to Auckland, which has you know, got you know, less earthquake risks and things like that. So that risk-based pricing sort of feeds into a looming issue, which is already here and now, of, of uninsurability. It becomes a real problem if you own a house that becomes uninsurable because of the risk of flooding or or sea level increases and so on. And so so where I am in Kapiti, for example, I went online for a property I was looking at and um, and one insurer just said we don't insure that area. Now, there are other insurers that do, but, you know. It's, so, uh, sorry, global. this is one of the main insurance companies. We're not talking about saying we'll insure it, but it's a big premium. They're actually saying we will not insure houses in this area. Yes. Okay, so that's already happening. Uh, There's some also happening where they will exclude flood damage, for example, or earthquake damage, for example. Yeah, well, exclusions become a problem because from the bank's perspective, um, if one of those events occurred, the security that they thought they had isn't there. still gone. So that's a a real problem. So, you know, is there an insurer of last resort, much like EQC sort of thing, required for flooding? Um, That's one of the questions. At the moment, obviously this is something that's been flagged by the Insurance Council for a long time. It will become increasingly expensive and increasingly difficult to get insurance in parts of the country. But in the situation at the moment where there's been a recent event, and it's a big part of the country, uh, Northland, Auckland, Tairawhiti, Hawke's Bay, uh, and a bit inland as well. Um, When there's a recent event, again, is this a situation where do not assume existing insurance will be provided, even where repairs have been done, David. Uh, absolutely. Look, Christchurch was a good example where after the earthquake, it was really hard to get insurance. But if you uh, were an existing um, client of a company, they'd let you buy another house and carry insurance over in the sense of you had a relationship. So, you know, we've sort of been going through this for, you know, 15 odd odd years now. Um, But with risk-based pricing, it's become, and the weather events we've had, which, you know, make it very top of mind, it's becoming more and more widespread across New Zealand as as a sort of an issue. And it can be an immediate response. For example, uh, insurers manage their level of exposure to risk. That's why they limit limit many of them, how many houses they're going to insure in Wellington, for example, with the earthquake risk. It may increasingly determine how many houses they're going to um, insure in flood-prone parts of our biggest city. And does that reassessment happen fairly quickly? Well, relatively quickly. I, I think what may well uh, evolve is specialist insurers that focus on these gnarly sort of situations. And if you've got 
a good spread of risk across a country or, or even globally. So as one event in one place doesn't wipe you out. Um, yes, premiums might be higher, but you develop a specialist set of skills, potentially to have assessors come and visit properties and make judgments on on things. So, you, you know, you see it for things like motorhomes and custom cars and so on, where there are specialist insurers. So I think that's probably what needs to evolve. So there is an insurer, you know, there's money in it if you manage your risk well. Just come back uh, to the immediate a, moment. You have definitely caught some situations where someone was ready to go unconditional and you said, hang on a minute, yeah? Yep. So we'd never uh, you know, allow, so to speak, a customer to get to the point of going unconditional without having ticked the boxes of insurance fund, um, funding and any other sort of conditions. You know, looking at the limb is useful because it gives a sense of the, you know, the geographically what are the issues. As, as, as uh, Christine said, it might not have the event that happened yesterday. Uh, but um, but we've always caught caught, caught those. Uh, just finally, um, and it comes back down to advice. Yeah, yeah just finally, um, there is a uh, statement here from the Real Estate Authority, which in part says it welcomes work being done by the Law Society to prepare optional clauses to accompany the sale and purchase agreements related to insurability. Just back to you, Christine. Should it be a mandatory clause in a, in a sale and purchase agreement, official sale and purchase agreement by the likes of REINZ? Clause. We, the Law Society, issued guidance around the, let's call them voluntary weather events clauses last year. And aside from my own contracts, I haven't seen these clauses used. I think it would be a better place to actually have it built into the agreement for sale and purchase. Thanks both of you very much. Uh, that is Christine King and David Cunningham.